All right, let me just add my happy Father's Day wish today to my dad, who is probably watching online. I love you more than words, and I look forward to visiting with you later today. But I offer that to all of you here. I've already wished happy Father's Day to several in here that have been father figures to me in various ways over the years. So um, I, I appreciate Eric also just calling out our Heavenly Father and wishing him a happy Father's Day. And I hope it is a good day for all of us um, as we reflect on our dads. Not everybody is a dad, but everybody's had one. And so uh, it is worthy of our reflection and honor that role. Now, before we get into our summer series in First John, I want to make a prediction. In two weeks from today, that's so the 4th of July lands on a Sunday. So in two weeks from the day, I predict no one will be here for worship no one will be here. So I'm not coming. I just want you to know, I will not be, even if you have plans to come, you won't be here for worship because we're not having worship. If you missed the announcements at the beginning, uh, we are having worship, but not here. We are going to be doing it out at the awesome campus of the High Plains Children's Home. And so if you don't know, if you're new to us and you're not familiar with that campus, it's beautiful. And we have a close relationship with that place. We love the work that's done there. And a lot of our members are workers from there and children from there. And, uh, and we are going to go get to enjoy that facility. And so we want you to make plans in two weeks from today, 1030, we will be out there for worship. We're sticking around for a cookout and some games, and you will get all the details of that next Sunday. You'll also get it through email. We'll send it to you in various ways. So please plan on coming to worship, but not here. And we're going to make accommodations. If, if you struggle to get around, we'll have parking right by where we're going to be worshiping for you. We'll reserve that for you. We really would love for everyone to join us out there and, and do this, uh, this kind of different thing. And, and enjoy each other in a different way. And so we're praying for that and looking forward to that. Uh, and, oh, and by the way, we won't have streaming as a result. We don't have streaming capacity out there for our worship service. So uh, up to my Australian friends who tune in every week, I apologize. And, uh, and uh, we will be back to our streaming normally at the week after that. All right, so as we continue our trek through First John, I wanted to let you know, just a little bit what happens in my office when I'm planning my teaching series. So I, I, I orchestrated, I plotted out the whole summer to where I would get through every verse of First John in these three months. Until I started the series, that was the plan. I started the series two weeks ago and realized, oh, I can't do more than these four verses. So I had to push some verses to the next week, which was last week. And then those ones I pushed, three verses that I pushed, I could only do those three verses last week. So I'm two weeks into it, and I'm already two weeks behind my plan. So I'm telling you that because there's just so much in here. Two reasons. One, I'm not going to be able to get through every verse. Even though it's only five chapters, I'm not going to be able to preach through every single verse this summer. And number two, I am doing an unprecedented eight verses today. Okay, so we're going to get started. I want to read, I want to read to you these eight verses, and then I will uh, uh, walk through them with you. So first John, we're still in chapter one, starting in verse eight, and then we'll go into chapter two. Here's what John says. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, there's Father's Day. He thinks of himself as a fatherly figure to these Christians. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. All right, so let me attempt to summarize the flow of John Uh, his teaching in these eight verses, okay? So he starts out in verse eight and he says, in no uncertain terms, do not sin. And then in verse nine, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 10 and bleeding into chapter two, verse one, he says, do not sin. And then in the rest of verse one and bleeding into verse two, he says, your sins are forgiven. And then in verses 3 through 5, he says, do not sin. On the surface, if you're just reading the Apostle John's words here, he seems like he's bipolar apostle, not the apostle of love. On the surface, it appears as if in, in every other verse, he is preaching the hard truth of the gospel. But then literally in every other verse, it feels like, and it seems like he is preaching the relieving message of grace of the gospel. And so in every other breath, if you read every other breath, it is as if he is saying obedience is the par- of paramount importance to pleasing God and of being saved. And then literally in every other breath, It is as if he is saying forgiveness. Your belief in the atoning work of Christ is of paramount importance in your capacity to be saved. And so if you are the church that reads one set of every other verse, you might come away rightly thinking, I can sin because I'm saved. I I am saved by no merit of my own, no work of my own accomplishes that. If you subscribe to the every other verse church, you will come away with something like, if I sin, I'm not saved. And so grace church and truth church seem to be birthed in every other phrase on the surface. That's what it seems like. It's like he's preaching two different sermons, but every time he looks down, he's looking at the wrong set of notes and he keeps going back and forth. That's what it looks like on the surface. So on the surface is an important phrase in this little summary of what we just read in these eight verses. Because if your faith, your so-called faith, (laughs) resides only at surface depth, only at an intellectual, academic, what you can read out of the Bible depth, then it does appear, it does seem, 
that there's an argument going on inside of John and coming out of his mouth. And you, if, if you have a surface depth faith, you will have an inclination towards one or the other. If you reside at a superficial academic level of your reading, you will, you, your heart will still apply itself and you will be inclined to read one way or the other. You'll read, when you read these passages and other passages in Scripture, you'll find yourself just naturally, without even being aware, you will go, oh, that's, wow, I'm underlining that. And then you just breeze through other ones, and you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm underlining that. And depending on your inclination, which is created by a lot of things, how you approach yourself, how you've been raised, who you're talking to in your own mind, your, you know, when you're, when you're reading who you, what you think they need to address, that dictates your inclination. So when you're preaching or teaching, and I, I'm not talking necessarily formally like I am here today, I'm including that, but I'm just talking about as you go about sharing your theological view and how you're raising your kids in the faith, you will have a bent, you will have a slant one way or the other on these messages, and you'll disregard the other ones, or at a minimum, turn the volume way down. There's two big, big words I learned in, in, in one of my Bible classes in college. One is called exegesis and one is eisegesis. I don't remember all the big words from college, but I remember those because they almost have Jesus's name in them. Exegesis, eisegesis. It's okay. That's just how I remember them. But anyway, so eisegesis is when you have an inclination or a predetermined thing that you want to get out of scripture, you load it up in your luggage and you take it with you to the text and you read. And then you only hear the verses that are supportive of what you've already predetermined you want to find there that you think it says and you disregard the others. Or you read the others but you interpret them to fit your predetermined understanding of what that scripture says. That's eisegesis. It's getting the Bible to say what we think it says or we want it to say. Exegesis is where you go to the text and you just read it. And you let what you read form and shape and create the tensions that, in, so that you walk out of scripture with what you believe it says. You get what you believe about scripture from scripture exegesis is always our goal. It's always what I'm trying to do with you. It's what we're trying to do with each other. It's what our aim should be. But we all have a surface level understanding that we bring into scripture and it makes us disregard verses that seem to contradict what we believe. So if we want to exegete this back and forth section of scripture from John, we need to acknowledge that he seems to have no problem at all going back and forth between these apparent opposites as if they, there is no contradiction at all. And there's a reason he does that. Because there is no contradiction at all. There is no contradiction at all. But only if you are pulled into the depths of the relationship with God and you don't allow your faith to be this superficial academic uh, exercise or project 
where you're just trying to extract words off a page. This is why it's so important to John. And he says this right at the beginning that his goal, remember his four goals for writing it? The chief one, the one that is the means of all the others, is that you have actual experiential God contact. That you experience God. That is a real experiential relationship because you know with any, if you're in any kind of relationship at all, it's complicated and it's nuanced. And paradoxes can both be true at the same time. So he wants you to have that with God so that you realize it's, it's nuanced. And if you, have, if you go into the depths of relationship, experiential relationship with God, you'll start reading this like John wrote it. As if paradoxes actually weave together and there is no contradiction at all. So here's a noteworthy saying as we approach the subject of sin today. Never attempt to address sin in yourself or in someone else without overtly and purposefully remembering the work of Jesus. Never attempt to confront, change, heal from, tell someone else about their sin without remembering the work of Jesus and never use the work of Jesus as an excuse or license to sin. If you do either one of these, you are not following Christianity. You are not following Christ. So that is worth noting as we now go into this text. And I just want to make a few observations here that I think are relevant for us. So I want to start with verse 8 and 10. We're going to skip verse 9. We're going to read the one section of of, uh, John's sermon. Well, I'm not going to reread it because I just read it. But I want you to look at it. And I want you to see that verses 8 and 10 make it abundantly clear that there is someone he's writing to that claims they're without sin. Okay, and so for whoever those people are, and we'll get into that here in a minute, whoever those people are that are claiming they're without sin, you do not want to be in that group that he's addressing, okay? Because he says there are four things true about those people that you do not want to be true about you. He says you're suffering from self-deception, all right? That's, that's one thing. Second, the, the truth is not in you. That means there's a lie in you. You're a liar. Worse, you also make God out to be a liar. Because, of course, God says, all, all have sinned. I mean, that, he goes, what do you think I sent Jesus for? You know, all have sinned. It's for the whole world. And he says, his word has no place in your life. That word, word, you remember I've taught you, when you read the word, word, you need to put Jesus' name in there. That will be a more accurate picture than anything else you could put. It's the word logos. And he's saying, if he's basically just saying the king, Jesus, the kingdom is not reigning in your life if you claim to be without sin. Now, you might be like me and go, whew, wow, that's a heavy list. It's not me, though, because I know I'm a sinner. You might be like me, and you might quickly jump to that, and you can disregard kind of all these complications of that because you don't claim to be without sin, but I want you to just hold your horses a minute, okay? Now, John, as I read his letter, he is famously universalistic. I just made up that word, I think. Universalistic in his statements. That is, he says things as broad as possible so that he can include all the different ways that individuals in this little community of churches might be 
be being addressed in this. And so that makes me go, okay, how are some, what are some, before I too quickly dismiss this and move on, what are some of the ways that I might claim I'm without sin? And I came up with a couple that I have done and that then it just started becoming clear. I've seen tons of Christians do this. They've done it with me. First, I might claim I'm without sin by saying something isn't a sin that is. I might claim there's something that is a sin, but I claim that it isn't. And I started thinking that through when I've done this and how I've heard Christians do this, and I came up with this list. This is a list of sins that I have at one point or another had Christians sit with me and rationalize how they are not sins. And I wouldn't be putting up there on the list if in these individual interactions, and I'm being specific and not generic, this is personal, not policy, right? It's personal. We walk with each other. That where I felt like what you're saying, what you're talking about is, is sin, but they are rationalizing that it's not. They're claiming it's not. And you may even look at this list and you might pick one because you're not in the specifics of it. You might say, now, hold on a minute. That one, or oh, that one, wait a minute. That, I know there's nuances, but because John says that if you're doing this, you're claiming you're without sin, is self-deception, you should red flag yourself if you do that on anything. Am I making sense here? If you ever look at something and your knee-jerk reaction is to that, wait a minute, that shouldn't be on the list. or that, that, that We need more conversation about that. I need to understand specifically what you're talking about. And you may indeed. And you may be right about some nuance. But if you are ready to argue about a sin, and I just put the ones that I could remember, okay, or think of. There's plenty of others. The fact that you're doing that should be a red flag to you and should humble us and make us examine things. Because if you are doing something that is sinful, that you're claiming is not a sin, but it is, then this passage applies to you. You're claiming you're without sin. Or you're encouraging others to sin in ways that you don't think that they are. That is, that is something we need to look at. There's a second way that I think we might do this cleverly, and that's just by evading responsibility for my sin. Done it. Heard plenty of Christians do it. I might respond to the idea if my father, John, came to me and wanted to confront something. I might say something, about, yeah, I did that, but. And then I tell a story. Very reasonable story. A very easy to empathize with story that explains why I did that. And the explanation is because of what someone else had done or some impossible circumstances I'm within. So for the record, if I do that, if I say, yeah, but, what I'm saying is I'm not responsible for my sin. I'm at least dulling the blow of my responsibility, if not actually saying I'm not responsible for that. These circumstances are, or this other person is. And bulletin, that is saying you didn't sin. Even if you say, yeah, but, and then tell the story why you did it, isn't that you saying I, there's a reason for that and that excuses me from something that's sinful? So I'm just saying, don't run from verses 8 and 10 too quickly. Because self-deception is a part of the thing you're suffering from, you cannot be too, you can't sit there and go, man, I know someone else who's needing to hear this. Because I don't. That, 
if you're self-deceived, that's exactly what you would expect yourself to say. Yeah, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I am saying we need to humble ourselves. We need to examine ourselves, and we need to look at that. And you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of being convicted. And I'm talking about of specific struggles with sin. Because sandwiched in the middle of verse 8 and 10 is verse 9. And there is a posture described there that can give you this nice sigh of relief of the grace side of things. Where he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Now, there it is, right? God promises to forgive our sins when we confess. It's right here in black and white, right? But this verse is not some kind of magic dust that you can sprinkle over your life in order to make disobedience okay or safe or permissible. Now, it's used like this by tons of Christians, it's used like this because it seems so clear. There was a, one of the guys I'm studying in my First John study is a guy named Warren Wearsby. He has a little commentary on this, and he tells the story of a college student who had been in class with his campus minister, and he came to his campus minister, was having coffee with him, and he said, yeah, I went out last weekend and sinned, and he told him how he sinned because I knew I could come and confess it. And he quoted this verse that he taught, that this guy taught him in Scripture. What do you think of that? I, I know if I come back and confess it, let me tell you what I think of that. I think that's a misuse of this, okay? I'm saying that very not strong enough. The word confession, okay, it does not simply mean admission. It would have said admission if it went admission. Confession doesn't simply mean admission. It includes admission, but admission of committing a sin is not some magic dust that gets me forgiveness, of that sin. Confession, the Greek word means to, let me see if I remember how the guy smarter than me said it. He said to think and say about something the same as someone else. I used way too many words for that, but it's to think and say the same thing as. So if we are going to confess our sin, okay, then we are going to think and say the same thing about that sin as God would. We agree with our Father. We agree with our Lord and Savior. And that means he don't want us doing it because he thinks and says that about it too. He says it through John in this passage on either side, <laughs> in fact. And so confession, he's saying, the, the, the effective kind, the kind that makes your life more like Christ is an agreement with God, not just an admission Okay, and if that's confusing, in the verse, there's a litmus test to know whether you are practicing confession in the way that works. Because do you notice, this is another example of how we only read what we want to hear. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us of our sins. See, God doesn't do anything halfway. He won't just forgive you. He forgives you. The atoning work of Jesus forgives you, but the atoning work of Jesus also cleanses you. It, it saves you in every way a human being needs to be saved. Not just in the next life, but this one. He will steal that sin from your life. And so this is a clear passage from our father, John, 
from his position as love saying, you need to confront your sin and God will help you. So if you're truly confessing your sins, that is agreeing with God about it, okay, then the promise here is he'll help you stop. He'll help you stop. Let me just ask you, are you stopping your sin? That is one of the most astounding and unpracticed part of the grace of God is the stopping of sin. Even that we don't get credit for, even though he invites us to spill our lives out to do it. Even that he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And you get to join me. So because self-deception is right at the heart of this passage, because of that, we must all, reflect on this. And we must do it regularly. Confession isn't a one-time act for a one-time sin, and it's not a one-time act before you get baptized for all of your sin. It's a practice. It's a lifestyle. It's a posture. So if I'm using that to go and sin so I can come back and confess, to go back and do it again, I'm missing the point entirely. And I might be, not might be, I am excusing a God-dishonoring, a relationship-dishonoring practice with a verse that I'm using as a loophole instead of as the truth. If we'll go deeper than on the surface confession, we'll experience this. We'll experience this. Your forgiveness will go way beyond forgiveness to cleansing. If you jump down, we'll say verse one and two to kind of finish up. But if you jump down to verses three through five, John actually says, do not sin, do not sin, do not sin to close off this. This is his subject matter. He says it three times in three different ways. He says, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. That's the proof that I've had this experiential encounter with him. Because, listen, an academic reading of that verse might give you some energy to try real hard. But you'll get tired and it won't work. When you experience God and his love... Just like when you experience some incredible person and their love, it inclines you to want to do things for a different motivation. Not because it's the right thing to do, even though it is, but out of a relational connection. He says, if you say you know him, you've had this relational God contact, and yet you continue to sin, you haven't had this relational God contact because people who meet him don't do that. They don't have that posture. Their posture changes. And they are committed with their life out of gratitude to God and out of just sheer response to his unbelievable love to want to not sin. In verse 4, he kind of repeats himself. He says, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's just saying it again, the connection between knowing him and obedience. And here's the connection between knowing him and obedience. We do not obey in order to get to know him. We get to know him. And as a result, we obey. This one, if you obey him to try to get to know him, not only will you get tired, you won't get to know him. If you get to know him, You meet him, as mysterious as that is. You get to know him through Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. Then you'll obey him. You won't be able to help yourself. 
but to spend the rest of your life wanting to please that good, good father. And then verse five, here's the clincher. It says, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. That's really our motivation in the end. We love him back because he loved us first. We'll get to that in John, first John. And we want this. We don't want just a sliver of his love. We want the whole thing. We want the complete love. And not only do we want to experience the complete love of God, we want it to be made complete in us. We want to feel that, and then we want to spill out and be complete love to everyone we meet. It's impossible. It's impossible. Matter of fact, I find myself jumping in my head and arguing with that whole vision and dream when I stay in my head, when I stay on the surface. You got to believe to live up to the ideal of the kingdom. You got to believe it's possible, not by your might but by his and your relational connection to him. So we're going to finish up in verses one and two of of chapter two. But let me ask our ministers and our elders, go ahead and stand up here and just move around the room. They're going to be around the, the, up there in the balcony and around here in the room, just in case you need a touch today. Their, Their little awkward move right here is to let you know who they are and that they're ready. They're ready to, uh, to hear from you and be with you if you need a prayer. You want to know what it means to follow Jesus. They'll walk right with you through that as well. So my hope today, church, is if you're a Christian, that you will grow up. Not in the areas that you have. Praise God for that. In the areas that you haven't. In the areas where you might not until today have dislodged from your comfort zone and your self-assurance. And you realize, what if I've deceived myself? And I've made something that's wrong right. Or I've rationalized something's wrong with the story of someone else's behavior or circumstances. And that you will grow up and that you will join in the way of Christ. That you will make it your business when you're confronting sin in yourself or in someone else that you love to represent the whole gospel. Because if you only represent one or the other, it won't work and it won't take. Humans aren't made to respond to these. You might can get some temporary obedience when you press this side without it offering them the safety of this side. You might get some awesome gratitude for a while if you press this side and you de-emphasize this side. But we're supposed to be the people on the planet that are healed and healing from our sin. The sin that I'm struggling with 10 years ago should be defeated and I'm dealing with new realms of sin that I'm struggling with now. And 10 years from now, I shouldn't be struggling with that one and it should be a new one. That's what the life of Christ is like. So I'm hoping we'll all grow up. Again, not in the areas that you have, but the areas that you haven't and that you'll make it your business to clean up your life. Clean it up. That we become the people that without hindrance and without apology... Yes, we confess we're sins. Yes, we depend on the grace of God. But we are all about being cleansed, purified of that same sin that used to convict us and condemn us and spend the rest of your life in this. This is what he says in verse 1. This is our spiritual dad's thought. He says, I am writing this so that you will not sin. He says in verse 1, my dear children, 
I write this so that you will not sin. And you can go about it. I know what you're going to say. I do it too. I'm like, if I hear that, I'm just like, but I will. I mean, I'm going to spend my life trying not to, but I, but, and out of gratitude, out of love from the depths of my relationship, but I know I'm going to. That's when he comes in and says, verse two, if anybody does, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And don't be afraid, church, because this atoning sacrifice is so powerful, it swallows up the sin of the whole world. He can handle yours. He can handle yours. But that's not licensed to stick with it. Can we do this, church? Can we, can we up our game? Can we up our game and please our Father? If you haven't had that intimate connection with the Father, that's, that's how you work on this. You pray to God through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, that he would give you God contact. That will mark you, and your life will never be the same. For those of you who have been marked by that, let's get to work. Let's clean it up. Let's conquer our sin. If we can help you in any way, let's stand, let's praise God, and come to us if if we can.